Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of a Light Unto My Path podcast. I am your host Howard Sides and today we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation focusing on the millennial reign at this point and uh, we have in previous podcasts discussed the structure itself, the setup, where it is in Jerusalem, uh, the sacrifices involved, answered a couple of different questions about it. Uh, and are actually in the middle of answering some questions and, and some thoughts on uh, how it is going to be established. Uh, the differences and the similarities between between some of the older uh, temples, such as that of Solomon, Herod, Zerubbabel, uh, the tabernacle structure itself. And so that's kind of where we're at now. Uh, we just looked at uh, some things that are similarities in the last podcast um, today, uh, let's continue on and talking about things that will not be included or that will be missing in this millennial temple uh, that were either A, included in the tabernacle or B, in the temple structure of Solomon, Zerubbabel, or Herod, okay, as one group and then this millennial temple as the other group or thing, or the other part of the thing that would be different. All right, in this millennial temple, uh, things that will not be included or will be missing. Uh, first is the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, now, one thing of very uh, high interest in a lot of people is this question of where is the Ark of the Covenant today? <laughs> where is the Ark of the Covenant today? And it is a relevant question. Uh, I understand why that would be asked. Um, but the, the, the thing is, if you go and look at the history is, uh, when the God had told him in the book of Deuteronomy, yeah, I'll be your God. You should be my people. If you follow me, I'll take care of you. If you start turning away from me and worshiping false gods and, and turning to idols and that sort of thing, uh, I am going to punish you by letting you become uh, slaves to other nations, uh, to fall into servitude, to bondage, all of this sort of thing. That's how they ended up under the control of Egypt for 400 years. Uh, that's how they ended up under the control of Babylon, under the control of the Medes and the Persians, under the control of the Greeks, under the control of the Romans. And listen, we can't be uh, critical of how they were. We're no better. We are no better. Uh, again, I think the only thing saving us in this day and age is this age of grace. And God, when he put forth grace, I mean, really, did he know what he was doing? Um, I'm certainly in need of it every day. And he is using bucket loads of grace, bucket loads of grace on just myself. And I'm sure if you're honest, you could say the same thing. Nobody's walking around perfect. And so we can't really expect that of these uh Israelites, okay? But um, one of the things that happened was when Babylon did come in and siege Jerusalem and take the people captive, uh, it says that Nebuchadnezzar went in and took the, the um, utensils and all of that out of the tabernacle and placed it in uh, the temple of his God. Now, there's several times through the Old Testament that uh, the Ark is mentioned. 
Um, I, I know way out, what up into first and second chronicles is mentioned. Um, and then after the second chronicles, uh, uh, let's see, it's mentioned once Jeremiah three sixteen. it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith the Lord, they shall say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they remember it, neither shall you visit it, neither shall they be done, uh, neither shall that be done anymore. Uh, that's the next reference, and it's of a future reference saying, hey, people are going to even forget that thing existed at one time. But the question is, where is the Ark of the Covenant today? It Did Solomon somehow regain it and find it and and hide it away before his temple was destroyed? Um, good question, but I'll give you this. I don't know if he actually did that or if God hid it of his own volition. Uh, we know that when Moses died, it said that uh, God took him and, and buried him so that no one would know where he was. You know why? Because people would turn his burial site into a monument which in turn would become a place of idol worship. They would worship Moses instead of God. Even in Daniel, I believe it, it says that Michael and Satan fought over the body of Moses, basically the bones. Yeah, they fought over the bones. So these, these articles and these things that were involved in the Old Testament worship uh, could be... be uh, could become symbols of worship. They could become idols themselves. And God's not going to let that happen with something so precious and so symbolic as the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you want to know where the Ark of the Covenant is today, I can tell you because the Bible tells us where it is. It's in heaven. Revelation, 19, uh, Revelation 11 and verse 19, it clearly says right there, and the temple of God was opened in heaven. And there was seen in his temple the Ark of his Testament. That's the same name as the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of his Testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So to answer the question of where is the Ark of the Covenant today, don't be digging in the ground looking for it because you're just going to be spending a lot of money and get no profit out of it because it ain't there. <laughs> All right. That's the simple answer. So. One of the items that we know that will not be in this Millennial Temple is the Ark of the Covenant. And you say, well, why not? There's no need for it. Christ himself will be there. That's it. Uh, another thing that won't be included in that, obviously, would be the pot of manna, also Aaron's rod that budded. They were the two articles that were contained in the Ark of the Covenant, along with the third item, which would be the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. There's going to be no need of that stuff. That was symbolic. It was representative to the nation of Israel uh, as uh, focusing and pointing to Christ. And again, Christ himself will be there. There's no need for these articles to remind them. They'll be able to see with their own eyes. Another interesting thing that will not be there uh, is uh, in the last podcast, we talked about it a little bit when we was describing what this Ark of the Covenant looked like, would be the lid that sits on the top of it, the mercy seat, it's called. Why is it called the mercy seat? It's called the mercy seat because uh, on this lid uh, were designed two cherubims with their wings pointing toward each other. 
And it said that when the Shekinah glory come down from heaven, when the tabernacle was done, when the Shekinah glory come down from heaven and entered into the tabernacle, this Shekinah glory dwelt in that space between the two tips of the cherubim's wings. That was the seat. That's where God sat. <laughs> the mercy came into effect from when the high priest would come in uh, once a year on the day of atonement and pour that blood over that mercy seat. That was the mercy that was shown to us. We've committed sin. Uh, the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death. We're born in sin. We have, all of us have Adam's blood <clears throat> running through our veins. So we inherited that penalty of sin. Uh, that's just the way it is. Uh, don't blame God, blame Adam. That's the way it is. But, so we see that the mercy seat will not be there. If the mercy seat's not there, then obviously the article that was on top of it will not be there either, which is the cherubim. Um, another item that won't be there is, as you move further out, the veil will not be there. It doesn't mention a veil in this millennial temple. It mentions doorposts and that sort of thing, but it does not mention a veil. Uh, another thing is the showbread, the table of showbread, uh, the golden candlestick. Neither one of those things will be there. You do have the uh, altar. And uh, the one other thing that I did not see, it's not in um, Dwight Pentecost's book, um, Things to Come, uh, is the labor. It, it doesn't mention labor, but it certainly mentions them priests being clean. They are cleansing themselves. So they've got water somewhere, but I, I, I don't recall seeing anything about a labor. So that's unusual. Uh, <clears throat> another thing that will not be included is the unapproachable Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could enter, and that only once a year in the Old Testament way. This system, uh, there's going to be the priests of Zadok's, Zadox, the priest of the lineage of Zadok, who were specifically set aside to minister unto the Lord. But then there's also going to be the prince. Uh, David's going to be there. Uh, he has the part of establishing the worship services, if it will, and that sort of thing. I don't think he actually ministers inside the tabernacle. That's the place of these priests, but they have free reign into the Holy of Holies. Um, Another thing that will not be involved here that was in the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and temples is the evening sacrifice. Um, of the five offerings reinstated, there is a different emphasis in their meaning. Also, there is no feast of Pentecost. <clears throat> now, if you remember in the last podcast, I mentioned the Passover feast will be observed, but the feast of Pentecost will not be. That that might have struck a line there. Hey, wait a minute, that sounded familiar. Okay, Feast of Pentecost will not be uh, involved. Uh, let me get back down to where it was. Yeah, here we go. Okay. All right, now these are the things that are missing. But there are also going to be additions to this millennial system. F.W. Grant, in his book, The Numerical Bible, he says, and I quote, The entrance of the glory into Ezekiel's temple to dwell there forever. 
the living waters that flow, enlarging from beneath the altar, the suburbs around it, the wonderful trees of healing, the new distribution of the land according to the twelve tribes, their equal portion therein, the readjustment of the tribes themselves, the prince's portion, and the city's new name, Jehovah Shammah, all go to prove that new Israel restored is a converted people worshiping God in spirit and in truth, end quote. So he's pointing out all these things that will be there, um, and, and they represent the fact of things that are going to prove that Israel as a nation is going to be a converted people, wholly converted, all of them converted, and they will literally be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. They're not going to be able to hide that stuff. It's going to be in truth. Now, one of the greatest changes will be seen in the role of the prince as it pertains to the temple and worship. Not only will he have royal prerogatives, but also priestly duties as well. Ezekiel 45 verse 7 says, And a portion shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other side of the oblation of the holy portion and of the possession of the city before the oblation of the holy portion and before the possession of the city from the west side westward and from the east side eastward and the length shall be over against one of the portions from the west border unto the east border. What it's talking about here is this dividing up the land. This holy oblation or the holy uh, portion uh, is the part set aside for the temple. And then the, uh, this part talking about here that there's going to be a section of that for this prince. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Uh, later on in the chapter, chapter 45, Ezekiel 45, verse 17, it says... And it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and drink offerings in the feasts and in the new moons and in the Sabbaths. In all solemnities of the house of Israel, he shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. Uh, two verses later in 19, it says, And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering and put it upon the post of the house and upon the four corners of the settle of the altar and upon the post of the gate of the inner court. So that part tells you the priest's part versus the prince's part. Let's try and keep all that straight. Tabernacle, temple, prince, priest. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next one, next verse, few verses down, verses 20 through 22 through 25, it says, And upon that day <clears throat> shall the priest prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. And seven days of the feast he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bullocks and seven rams without blemish daily the seven days, and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a meat offering of an ephah for a bullock and an ephah for a ram and an hen of oil for an ephah. In the seventh month, in the fifteenth day of the month, shall he do the like in the feast of the seven days, according to the sin offering, according to the burnt offering, and according to the meat offering, and according to the oil. Okay, now, <clears throat> in, in describing how unique uh, this prince's role will be, F.W. Grant in his book, The Numerical Bible, states, and I quote, 
Uh, we have the prince who has a unique and highly favored position. It is his privilege to occupy the eastern gate at which the glory of Jehovah entered. To him the offerings of the people are given, and by him administered in providing for the ritual of sacrifice. <clears throat> it does not appear that the people bring sacrifices of themselves, but that it is the prince who gives all for the prescribed ritual, including the daily burnt offering. In verse 17, the people are spoken of as simply worshiping at the times of offering by the prince, but the act of offering is his, the priests and Levites acting in their respective capacities. He thus fills a representative position on behalf of the people in the matter of special, specific offerings. While in all of these, the people may be considered as having their part, since in the first instance, they present their offerings to the prince, verse 13 through 17, and join in worship when he offers. It would seem also that he occupies a representative position for God toward the people, since he is privileged to commune with Jehovah at the east gate. End quote. That's from book four on page 239. Now, in reading what F.W. Grant just said here about this prince, which uh, we've already talked about him a little bit, and I certainly believe that it will be David. Um, it is possible to be someone else. Uh, could be, I mean, it could be Enoch, for all we know. It could be Elijah. But I really specifically believe uh, that it points to David being this unique person uh, to be able to accomplish what is uh, he is tasked with here. Now, it's obvious that such a person with such an important role as this is unique to the millennial age and has no counterpart <clears throat> in the Levitical order. If you go back through the book of Exodus and study uh, the layout of the tabernacle and go in the book of the Kings, uh, when Solomon sets up his uh, temple there, uh, there's no mention of anyone that has a role like this. No one. Uh, also, this priest will be an earthly representative of the king-priest ministry of Christ after the order of Melchizedek and will most likely be resurrected David, since it will be David who is in charge of the worship. Um, okay, now, we asked in the last podcast, <clears throat> excuse me, if the sacrifice would be literal. And I believe we've defined it by the passages in the Bible that describe it. Yes, they're going to be literal. Uh, now let's look at this final point here uh, in dealing with uh, Revelation before we do like an overview. Uh, the purposes of the sacrifices. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, first, these sacrifices will have nothing to do with salvation from sin. Okay, let's just lay that down and nail it to the wall. It will have nothing at all to do with salvation from sin. Anyone who presents one of these sacrifices is not saved from their sin. They will still have to approach God through his son. That's it. That's all they can do. Now, having said that, uh, obviously the second point is that they will be memorial in their character. It is a reminder 
of something. What? Uh, well, it's stated in Hebrews 10, uh, 10 through 12, that the fact that Christ's death paid for all sins once and for all reveals that these sacrifices can and are only memorials of his death. Uh, Hebrews 10, 10 says, by the way, by the which will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, and every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. I, can you say it any better than that? Jesus Christ only had to die once. All them sacrifices that all them priests offered up, all that time, all that blood that was shed, uh, millions upon millions of gallons of liters of blood that was shed out in that time, all it could ever do was hold off the payment of the. It could never take away any of those sins. Even if it was all applied to one sin, it would never still be enough. But he, him, Jesus Christ, when he offered himself up as the one sacrifice, he paid for all sins forever because his blood's worthy. Now, in view of this, Arthur Arno C. Uh, boy, I hope I say this name right. Gabeline, G-A-B-E-L-E-I-N. Or Arno C. Gabeline. In his book, The Prophet Ezekiel, he said, and I quote, while the sacrifices Israel brought once had a prospective meaning, <clears throat> the sacrifices brought in the millennial temple have a retrospective meaning. When during this age, God's people worship in the appointed way at his table with the bread and wine as the memorial of his love, it is a retrospect. We look back to the cross. We show forth his death. It is till he comes. Then this memorial feast ends forever. Never again will the Lord's Supper be kept after the saints of God have left the earth to be with the Lord in glory. The resumed sacrifices will be the memorial of the cross and the whole wonderful story of the redemption for Israel and the nations of the earth during the kingdom reign of Christ. And what a memorial it will be. What a meaning those sacrifices will have. They will bring to a living remembrance everything of the past. The retrospect will produce the greatest scene of worship, of praise, and adoration this earth has ever seen. All the cross meant and the cross has accomplished will be recalled and a mighty hallelujah chorus will fill the earth and the heavens. The sacrifices will constantly remind the people of the earth, of him who died for Israel, or he died for all, uh, continuing quote, who paid the redemption price for all creation, and whose glory now covers the earth as the waters cover the deep, end quote, page 312 through 313. Now, in conclusion, 
these sacrifices could not pay for sins as no animal sacrifice ever accomplished the complete removal of sin. But are memorials of the perfect sacrifice, of the one typified by all sacrifices, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And that person is Jesus Christ. And it could only be Jesus Christ. No one else has been, can be, could be, or ever will be able to meet all the requirements that he did. He had to be God. He had to be a perfect human being. And so when he came, he was not half God and half human. He was all God and all human at the same time. Okay? All right. <clears throat> now, um, let's see here. I've got kind of like an overview of some things involved in the millennial reign, and then, then we'll get back to Revelation. Let, let's just jump into this and hit the high points. I've got like uh, hmm, oh, 50 plus minutes to do this. I think we can get it done. All right, the relation between living and resurrected saints in the millennium. The relation between living and resurrected saints in the millennium. The groups involved here are uh, resurrected saints uh, and translated saints. Uh, that's the two we're talking about here. Now, resurrected saints involve the Old Testament believers. Uh, their bodies will be recovered from their earthen graves and will be reunited with their souls coming from heaven. Okay? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Their bodies are buried in the ground. Their souls are with the Lord. So when their bodies are resurrected from the graves, they meet their souls, boom, and they're brought back together. Okay? Uh, the other part of resurrected saints will be New Testament believers. Due to the rapture of their bodies, uh, they will return... What's <laughs> my place there? Due to the rapture of their bodies at the time of the rapture, uh, their, their bodies and souls, again, will be reunited in the air uh, and all will return with Christ in their glorified bodies. Okay, so that's the resurrected saints. Now the translated saints. This involves two groups. There will be living saints from among the Jews, and then there will be living saints from among the Gentiles. Now, the appointments that we know of, as far as I understand it, the appointments. The New Testament church will reign as the bride of Christ. Now, I do know the Bible says that individual saints will have particular roles they will play in the millennial reign. Some will be governors. I believe some will be kings, and some will be uh, foreign ambassadors, that sort of thing. Uh, but as a whole, the New Testament church will reign as the bride of Christ. The Old Testament saints will be rewarded in this age, in the millennial age, but will only realize this but will only realize this reward in the new Jerusalem. When they get to the point of the New Jerusalem, that's when they realize it. Now, as far as the translated saints go, uh, those who live through the tribulation period, both Jews and Gentiles, 
will be the subjects of the king and will be allotted the parcels of land in Palestine. And you think, well, wait a minute. It said the Palestine be divided between the 12 tribes. It also says that those Gentile believers will be adopted into the families. Okay. I think that answers that question there. Okay. The nature of the Old Testament hope. The nature. The Old Testament describes the glory and blessings that wait the heirs of promise. The heirs of promise. Now, this expectation was clearly presented as the hope of the saints. To describe the relationship between the Old and New Testament saints, as well as the resurrected and the unresurrected, it is necessary to distinguish certain aspects of the promises given in the Old Testament. Uh, there are, of course, national promises, and then there are individual promises. National promises and individual promises. Now, within the national promises, uh, these are certain promises that were specifically for the nation of Israel alone. These promises rest on the eternal and unconditional covenants, which are promises, which God made with the nation as a whole, and which find their fulfillment by the nation itself. And there are uh, four of them. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, and the new covenant. Now, the Abrahamic covenant, as originally stated in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and then reiterated in Genesis 13, 14 through 17, chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, and then again in chapter 17, verses 1 through 18. While it included certain individual promises to Abraham, uh, it did concern itself more with a posterity in the line of Abraham and their possession of the land given to Abraham by promise. Uh, you can go back and read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and 13, 14, 17, and chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, chapter 17, 1 through 18, you get all that. Um, we're kind of a pressed for time, so I'm just going to lay it out there for what it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the Davidic covenant. This was a covenant that was promised to David. Um, and this was in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 4 through 17. 2 Samuel 7, chapter 4 through 17. Uh, now, this covenant takes the promises concerning the seed in the Abrahamic covenant and makes that seed the subject of an enlarged promise as a kingdom, a house, and a throne. While this promise is made to David and also includes certain individual blessings to him, yet the fulfillment of this promise is found in the nation itself. Okay, so you kind of see a progression here. The Abrahamic covenant dealt with uh, a promise to his seed. Uh, giving them a land to have, simply put. Now, when he gets to David, the promise goes beyond just having the land. It promises them a kingdom and a house and a throne. So it, it, it kind of grows with that. Uh, the third one is what is called the Palestinian covenant. The Palestinian covenant. And that is talked about or given, I guess you'd say, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 10. 
Now, this covenant takes the promises in the Abrahamic covenant, which are concerned with the land, and enlarges on that portion of the covenant. This is a promise of possession of and blessing in the land that was given to the nation as a whole. Okay? So it deals more with the land than it does the people, but maybe that's why it's called the Palestinian covenant. All right? Uh, the final one is the new covenant. The new covenant. Uh, this is covered in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. 31 through 34. Uh, now let's just read this one since it's the final one anyway. Uh, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now notice he brings them back together because right now they're separate in the time of Jer Jeremiah. Today they're non-existent really. <clears throat> Verse 32. Now, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, that's quite a statement right there. So here what we see in the new covenant is this covenant takes the promises of blessing found in the Abrahamic covenant and makes those promises the subject of enlargement. Now, the New Testament makes it clear that this promise is to be fulfilled only by the conversion of the nation at the second coming of Christ. Romans 11, 26 through 27. And so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So what we see here is that all of Israel's hopes were based on these four covenants which God had made with them and that these covenants confirmed certain national hopes and blessings and necessitate the preservation, continuity, and restoration of the nation. Uh, now that's the national promises. Now let's look at the individual promises. <clears throat> individual promises. Now, while the majority of the covenant promises pertained to national promises, there are some that were focused on individual promises. Individual promises. One of those promises is the hope of a resurrection. Isaiah 26, 19 through 20. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. <clears throat> Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into my chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. Now that is one reference. Another one is in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, and then again in verse 13. 
I'm not going to take the time to read all these, but I will give you the references. Because if you can't tell yet, my voice is about to go out. I'm trying to get to the end of this. <clears throat> it always happens here. Imagine that. I can stand around and talk all day in the yard or outside or at work. And it never affects me. Get into this and all of a sudden have trouble. Uh, Hosea, chapter 13 and verse 13. Uh, then again in the book of Job, chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. <clears throat> All of these deal with the individual promise of the hope of a resurrection. That's not talking to the New Testament church. That these are Old Testament people. Okay? So they have the hope of a resurrection as well. Uh, there's also the expectation of individual judgment and rewarding. Judgment and rewarding. Uh, let's see, we'll read a couple of them. Isaiah 40 <clears throat> and verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. Ezekiel 11 and verse 21. <clears throat> but as for them whose heart walketh after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will recompense their way upon their own heads <clears throat> saith the Lord God. Uh, the next section uh, is another large portion of scripture that involves that. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 through 44. 33 through 44. Uh, the next one is Ezekiel 22, verses 17 through 22. Ezekiel 22, 17 through 22. And then Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 7. Then again, Zechariah 13 and verse 9. And then uh, there's two in the book of Malachi. The first one's chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. And the final one, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. <clears throat> chapter 4 and verse 1. Uh, now note what he says here. For behold the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. The day shall come. No, behold the day cometh that shall burn as an oven. That's pretty hot. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Okay, so that is uh, the promise of individual judgment and reward. There's also the promise of blessings in the new heaven and the new earth. The new heaven and the new earth. Isaiah 65, 17 through 18. 65, 17 through 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And then Isaiah 66 and verse 22. 66 verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Okay, 
there can be no question that the Bible is absolutely clear in showing that Israel's national promises will be fulfilled by the nation itself in the millennial reign. Also, it is clear that these promises are earthly in content and thereby must be fulfilled during the millennial reign. They can't wait till they get to heaven. It has to be fulfilled here. <clears throat> this promise will be carried out by those believers, Jew and Gentile, who survive and live through the tribulation period and are accepted into the earthly realm of the millennial kingdom. Now, concerning the national promises, however, notice this. Hebrews tells us that Abraham and his descendants who died in the Old Testament never received the promises, but were, in fact, looking forward to a heavenly city, a heavenly city. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should not have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Later on, same chapter, Hebrew 11, verse 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now in reading that, it is evident from these verses that the hope which was Abraham's, as well as all the other Old Testaments, is in resurrection, had to do with a heavenly city and not an earthly kingdom. They weren't focused on this millennial reign as much as we like to pretend that they were. They were totally focused on heaven just like we are. Now this promise of a heavenly city, just as I said, also pertains to Christians today. Hebrews chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 22 through 24. Uh, but ye are come unto Mount Zion <clears throat> and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Not Abel as in ability, but Abel as in Adam's son, Abel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, this important passage teaches that saints of all ages will be in the heavenly Jerusalem. The inhabitants of the heavenly city are itemized as an innumerable company of angels, the New Testament church, which is the bride, God as the judge, Jesus as the mediator, 
and the spirits of just men made perfect, which refers to all Old Testament saints. Now, John Woolvord says in his commentary, and I quote, This view contemplates the heavenly Jerusalem as in existence during the millennium, suspended over the earth as the habitation of the resurrected saints, and is in contrast to the city of Jerusalem located on the earth. The heavenly Jerusalem apparently is withdrawn at the time of the destruction of the present earth and heaven. Then, as pictured in Revelation 21 and verse 2, it returns to the new heaven and the new earth when the scene is ready for its descent. This interpretation regards Revelation 21 and verse 9 as the heavenly city in the eternal state, though recognizing its existence in the millennium. <clears throat> it provides a clear distinction between resurrected saints who inhabit the new Jerusalem and the millennial saints on the earth who will inhabit the millennial earth. It is assumed, though the scriptures do not state it, that the millennial saints at the end of the millennium will be translated prior to their entrance into the eternal state and thus will qualify for entrance into the heavenly Jerusalem. Okay, <clears throat> that is everything I could get up on the millennial reign. <clears throat> and I'm sure that's not all of it. I'm sure there's a whole lot more. But that's it. Now we will, uh, in the next podcast, return to the book of Revelation. Um, if you've lost your place, don't know where we're at again. It's chapter 20. And we'll start with verse 7. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. Okay. All right. Now, uh, again, as I always say, I uh, thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, certainly as much as I have, I, I enjoy doing this. So I, I hope you're enjoying it, at least to a portion of it, of the way I enjoy it. Um, thank you for listening once again. Uh, remember to pray for me, pray for each other, pray for your local church, pray for your pastor, and certainly let's pray for our country. Even so, Lord, please come quickly. But this this thing's just got to be over soon, you know. Uh, it, it just has to be. <laughs> okay. Okay. Have a great day. Thank you for listening once again, and God bless you.